Capital. Uh, my name's Anders Furs. I'm joined with Eloise Ross and Andy Hazel. Hello. Hi, Anders. And today uh, we're looking at Steven Spielberg's The BFG, Piero Messina's The Weight, and then we're taking a look at the Melbourne set rom-com Love and Other Catastrophes. Uh, we're also going to be looking at our top three children's book adaptations. And uh, just a little note before we begin, if you if you can tell that the audio quality is a lot better, it's because we're doing this in a professional studio for the first time. It's so pretty exciting. It is. I've got to say. Yeah, we feel like real people now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good. It's going to be good. Um, anyway, let's begin with Steven Spielberg's uh, adaptation of Roald Dahl's book, The BFG. <laughs> It was the witching hour when the boogeyman comes out. The girls say the witching hour arrives at midnight. I think it comes at three in the morning when I'm the only one left awake, like now. Andy, do you want to tell us about this film? So Steven Spielberg's latest film, The BFG, is a film that comes with expectations. Uh, Roald Dahl's book about an orphaned Londoner, Sophie, being stolen from her bed by the giant that she names The BFG, has tens of millions of ardent fans. So a good adaptation of this um, should faithfully honour his dark sense of humour and world-rounded child characters, wild imagination and humanitarianism. So on the surface, it would seem like uh, Spielberg is an ideal adapter for this. It was when it was announced that John Williams would be composing the score and screenplay would be written by Melissa Matheson, who also adapted The Black Stallion and worked with Spielberg on E.T. E. and Kundun. Audiences such as us could reasonably prepare themselves for something very special, I thought. Um, Eloise, did you find that the BFG was uh, big, fantastic and gladdening or bloated, functional and god-awful? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting you mentioned Roald Dahl's wicked sense of humour because I think this was a good film very sweet and I think you can definitely tell that Spielberg um, has a lot of love for Roald Dahl and has a lot of love for the story and has a lot of love for the magic that comes with this idea um, and for the children who who are affected by this story but I don't think it has that you know that spark that special Roald Dahl spark I did really enjoy it and I do think it's the the effects are beautiful they've used this incredible um motion capture process to to present the giants as they are ha- acted by real people, including Mark Rylance and who's the... Jermaine Clement. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they're very good, very, you know, vivid caricatures of, or characters, I should say, of, of um, you know, the, the great Roald Dahl creations. Um, and they do a great job. But I just, I just don't know that this you know, is quite up to it. I was very fond as a child of the animated, um, the hand-drawn animated version of the BFG from 1989. I watched that a lot. I used to go to the local video store and get that quite regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually watched that again the other day in part, and I don't know that this movie trumps that one. Really? Interesting. I, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's... It's it's not a bad film. There's a lot of interesting things uh, that are in there. I think Sp- Spielberg's got this kind of wonderful attention to detail. So every frame, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, it's all it's all like very nicely drawn. I did appreciate how 
you know, his camera lingers. Um, it's not like cuts yeah. every three seconds. It's not ostentatious or like um, arrogant in any way. Mm. It's very yeah. nice in that in that sense. And a, a real sort of sense of these locations, which is one of my major bugbears of modern Hollywood filmmaking. So you actually you get a sense of the orphanage as a building and where it's located in London. You get a sense of the BFG's house. Like it's it's got this nice sort of yeah, that sort of attention to world building, I guess, that Spielberg is very good at. Um, but then there were some issues with it too, I thought. I thought the pacing was a bit odd. Um, it sort of it stretched for long periods of time, uh, I found were kind of boring. I thought where it sort of misfires, you look at the, um, the Buckingham Palace sort of set piece... And it's a great idea, and my, to be fair, my audience really responded well to it. Um, people were laughing. It sort of sets up this joke um, about about characters farting, essentially. And it sort of builds and builds and builds and builds to this sort of moment uh, where, where these characters will, like, fart. And then the actual action... Was a bit of a letdown. It didn't. The film didn't really. It really was. Pay off, did it? In the book, that's an extraordinary scene. Yeah. You know, like there's vivid um, pictures drawn of the fact that the giant and the queen and Sophie all fart and like hit the ceiling and yeah. stuff. And it yeah. just, yeah. it was a bit of a letdown that scene. And I it, agree. It was really built up so well. Like mm. I was really like, oh my god, oh my god, and then it just sort of fizzled. I guess. And I guess that's. Um, Rob's got all fizzled. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and, you know, the film as a whole, I think, was like that. But I agree. I think Mark Rylance is incredible as a giant, mm. really, in a way. And mm. I really, I sort of really dug his performance. I kept yeah. remembering him in the few days after I saw it. I, yeah. Like, he just came into my mind yeah. as a nice person who I had met. But then I realised that, in fact, he was just a film character. But he was that, yeah. you know, he was that kind of vivid in uh, his... Absolutely. He's really, he's lingered for me as well. Yeah. Mm. What do you think, Andy? Well, I was pretty disappointed by it, really. Uh, there were certain parts that I think worked really well. I think the the motion capture with Mark Rylance was incredible. But then with the giants, I felt like there was a weightlessness to them and then there was there was just no gravity. I couldn't, I thought there was a lack of characterization about the giants. I didn't understand why they were cannibals and why mm. um, Runt or the BFG wasn't. That was never really explained. Their motivations when we explained the whole sections in the book of them eating children was taken out pretty much completely, I'm guessing, for taste reasons. Mm. Although farting dogs, they're okay. <laughs> so I don't, I, I, there was a few problems I thought. That I felt like Weta did better special effects 15 years ago in, in, in French Fellowship of the Ring than they did in this. Even, but despite the fact that you didn't get the Uncanny Valley effect you get in the Polar Express or with Tintin mm. in those films, I felt like you get the dead eyes and that's weird. But there was none of that with Mark Rylance. Also in the book, I remember her writing around in his ear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that didn't seem to... Uh, maybe that... There was a, uh, there was actually a big thing about scale that I thought was very strange with this as well because he seemed to be a lot, small, like, a lot smaller than than he's presented in the book. And also there was... The, uh, he's only I, the size of eight, eight of the tallest men that existed yeah, right. In the book. Oh, is that so the... Uh, that's what it was. Okay, yeah, the, I was rereading the book. Because yeah, I thought right. that was a beautiful thing in the book itself is that scale is a big thing to a kid. Mm. That everything is huge and you're tiny. And then in the movie, it, you know, it didn't quite have that same sort of balance. Um, because when you go to, to BFG's cave, it feels like it's built for him and it's very much his height. And when the giants mm. come in, they're hitting their heads and stuff. And I felt like they probably would have come in before then, but it seems like that's the first time they've ever entered his cave because stuff is getting broken and smashed and all that sort of stuff. I didn't feel like I had the lived-in quality that I usually associate with some of the really good Spielberg stuff. Yeah. Um, there was a few th more things that I just wanted to mention um, 
one of the kind of pitfalls of, I suppose, a lot of film adaptations of Roald Dahl books is that often the ending is changed. And I think that's because they want to be presented more, you know, more kind of safe and sanitary for mm. children, more of like, you know, kind of a, a dreamlike um, world. Um, so often you'll have the, you know, the kind of bitter and, you know, wicked humour taken out of the endings, mm. as in yeah. like the witches and as in Matilda. So all of those things are kind of gone. And in this film, it was, the ending was different as well. So they drop the giants in the middle of the ocean and they sit on an island instead of keeping them in a pit on display in the middle of London, which I think is like incredible and <laughs> yeah. so much fun. And yeah. I was rereading the book um, and I just came across a line like right towards the end where it says, you know, these giants were just in the middle of London and people kept looking at them. You know, they were a big tourist trap kind of thing. Um, and in general, people just looked. But one day three workmen had had too much beer for lunch and they went and looked in and they fell in. <laughs> and then there's a line which says, like, there were sque screams of glee from the giants and then it just moves on. And I'm like, that's incredible in this children's book to just have this line about, like, oh, well, these, these drunkards got eaten, but who cares? And that was not in the film. I found mm. it, you know, kind of very, a bit, a bit humourless yeah. in a way. Yeah, like, yeah. it was very respectful of Roald Dahl, but it was a bit humorless. Yeah, I think maybe it was some of his classism that he was sometimes accused of coming back. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you make of Ruby Barnhill, who plays Sophie, the main actress? She was fine. I had no problem and no connection with her at all. Mm. Um, I preferred, you know, I don't know, I just didn't, yeah, I didn't have an opinion really. That's okay. not an interesting response. But <laughs> what about you? Oh, yeah, she's, I mean, yeah, she does a good job, I think. Um, I I believed her. <laughs> I believed her. I've read in some places that this is the first female protagonist that Spielberg has had. Oh, in the film. Okay. And I thought it was unusual that she wasn't girly at all. She was just presented as a kid. Interesting. Like, resourceful and she wasn't, you know, she mm. had a, um, that cropped haircut. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah. But you saw it in 3D. I did. You, Andy? Well, I barely remembered it, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Okay. It wasn't presented. There was nothing, no mention of it in any of the advertising or the... Mm. Or the yeah, Marketing. and you think it was unnecessary. I can see when, because I knew you'd seen it in 3D and I saw it in 2D, and I can, when I was watching it, I could see why they'd chosen 3D. I mean, you know, because all big studio movies are presented in 3D, but I could see what they would have been trying to do, but also totally unnecessary. I'm like, it kind of captured some visual splendour even without it, so. Mm. Yeah. 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 So maybe, you know, nice, but... Not spectacular. Yes. Yeah. A bit of a soft, bit of a soft recommend. I'll yeah. Say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Now on to the weight, uh, an Italian French co-production directed by Piero Messina. This film stars Juliette Binoche as a woman who lives in a giant Sicilian mansion. Uh, one day, her son's girlfriend arrives at the house. Um, but she doesn't tell the son's girlfriend that he has died. And the film sort of plays out this slow drama where uh, we know that he's died, kind of. Or do we? Or do we? Uh, and, yeah, people have different levels of knowledge, I guess, about, about this key uh, thing at the centre of, of the drama. It's based on a Piranello play, um, and I think once you put it in that context, the story and the drama of the film make a lot more sense for me. But what did you think of it, Andy? Uh, this is really, really interesting film. It didn't remind me of anything I'd seen for a long time mm. before. It was very 
very, very carefully controlled, beautifully executed. The lighting was impeccable. The framing was gorgeous. There was um, a great sense of, of, you know, I suppose given the title of the film, there's a lot of uh, of proposed questions that never seem resolved. They take their very, very, very long time to get resolved. So there's this mounting sense of anticipation within these kind of very carefully controlled shots, which I thought was quite interesting, but then I wasn't entirely convinced that the gravity of the questions like was worth all these beautiful mm. shots of mm. vistas and um, and people's faces. And I mean, I think there's an awfully long way you can go by just training a camera on Juliette Binoche's face to make a really good film. Mm. But I think you need more of a around it than the weight was offering. Yeah, I agree. I narratively, um, I don't know that these questions kind of held up for a, a, a whole feature film. Um, but what I was really impressed by and taken in by, um, and I could barely look away while we were watching it, um, is, you know, the sense of pacing and the editing and the timing and the camera placement. I was just Mm. so impressed by everything. It's got this, it had this really like, um, intense and impressive control on when the camera cut, sometimes when you expected it to, but sometimes when you didn't at all, it cut too soon or it waited just that, you know, that beat or two longer. Um, sometimes a beat or two past, you know, a particular musical cue or just past a particular, like, maybe eye or, or visual facial cue. Um, and so I was very impressed by that and I think that was a really, in, you know, incredible kind of um, technique that the film employed to, to kind of get us very much stuck into the narrative even though we might have been frustrated by it. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with everything you said. I think I was really kind of blown away by how ambitious the filmmaking is, even if it didn't quite... Even if the drama didn't quite capture me for the whole the whole film. But, I mean, so there were some really quite audacious um, set pieces, I think. Um, I've... The opening credits. I loved yeah, the, the opening credits with the travelator, and when it. the kid yeah. starts running and dancing, yeah. set to that XX track, it was just like, "Where's this camera?" I wasn't expecting that to happen. Completely, it's mm. almost sti- yeah. totally stylistically removed from yeah. the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. The music cues were very unusual. Yeah, yeah. They were, and then the Leonard Cohen dance was quite incredible too. In yeah, way. I've got to mention, I I don't know whether I find it like a little bit too cheesy. I was very impressed by the music, the XX and the Leonard and Leonard Cohen. Um, Waiting for the Miracle and a few other songs. But, you know, the XX and the Leonard Cohen song both had, were both, you know, lyrically about waiting. And I kind of was like, "Mm, maybe that's, you know, not so cool, (laughs) you know, very on the nose. But, you know, they did them very well. Um, And, of Mm. course, Leonard Cohen, you know, is so sad and so sexy every time his music is used. And I just found it like that was a great scene, that dance scene. And they they let the Leonard Cohen song go on for, you know, a very good chunk of time. I'm almost a sucker for people dancing, I've got to say, on screen. Yeah, I, look, it's not a subtle film at all, but, I, yeah, no, I really, I kind of, you know, I I would like to rewatch it as well. It really, I don't know, it, yeah, it gripped me. There's something there. It's beautiful. If nothing else, it is beautiful yes, to watch. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Um, I certainly thought that the, uh, the rest, there was a very small cast and you could feel a theatrical bent to it, I think, which doesn't really surprise me when you mentioned that it is adapted mm. from a play. So I thought that there was a, mm. a few interesting choices to make it more cinematic that um, Messina took, particularly the use of other locations. Like, it felt a little bit claustrophobic, even though you're in this beautiful, kind of austere, very clean, very minimalist um, mansion. I mean, the kitchen seems like it's from a 
a painting much more than it is a practical place to make food. It mm. seemed like a lot of these places were like, well, there's an inordinate number of mirrors, for example, in certain rooms, which mm. suggests that he's off, he's trying to make points and use symbolism rather than... Definitely, in that house. setting at the lake, which becomes, you know, a very important mm. setting later, we begin to realise um, it's, you know, it looks so similar to, I mean, so many lakeside settings do, but it looks so similar to, you know, all of these kind of... Um, lakeside settings that you would find in, you know, film noir, which are like, you know, terribly oppressive in their sense and in their presence, but also, you know, very visually open. Mm, yeah. yeah. It does make a beautiful use of the Mediterranean natural light in quite a lot of those. Mm. Oh, the lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that he, he was sort of obsessed with darkening the rooms too, wasn't he? Those like mm. Juliette Binoche shutting uh, blinds over and over again and like just her face fading into darkness. <laughs> I don't know. A very dreamlike, weird... Yeah, yeah, weird film. It is, and it's, and it's come with middling reviews. It's come with very little yeah. publicity. It's not. Yeah, it's unusual. But, but it opened on Thursday, screening at Nova. I don't know if it's screening at other Palace. I guess cinemas. Palace would yeah. Nova and Palace. So mm. yeah, yeah, I'd totally go recommend see it, it, everyone. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, hello there, dogs in space. Welcome to Nova. For our, our semi-regular segment, uh, looking at a Melbourne classic film, um, and this week we've chosen to look at uh, *Love and Other Catastrophes*, which is a 1996 micro-budget comedy um, filmed in Melbourne um, in a total of 17 days. It was filmed um, mostly at Melbourne Uni by Emma Kate Crowen, who has also made a few other films, um, most notably, I think, a film called uh, Strange Planet in 1999. I haven't seen it. Have either of you seen it? No, no. Anyway, it's gotten some, you know, kind of sparkling reviews as well, so that might be a nice one to check out. Um, so even though this was a micro-budget, apparently um, Emma Kate Crowen got some money from Fox Searchlight after the film screened at Cannes and, and managed to spruce up the presentation of it a little bit. Um, but anyway, so this film is uh, follows Mia Frances O'Connor, who is breaking up with her girlfriend, Danny, played by Rada Mitchell. Um, this is before, you know, before they were famous kind of thing. Um, and also about Mia's housemate, Alice, played by Alice Garner, who has two potential love interests, both played by men named Matt. Um, <laughs> Anyway, all are undergraduate students in the humanities, mostly focused in film studies. Um, and so I related to it, and I assume it, yep. that it relate, <laughs> most of us related to it for that reason. Um, I really enjoyed this film, um, but I did. I, we, I watched it on YouTube. I think we all did, so it's on YouTube. And it had this yellowy, t orange tint to it. And I thought that was because, you know, it's 20 years old and it was on YouTube, so it was a poor transfer. But afterwards, I sort of looked it up and realised that... Um, They'd actually filmed it with a with a yellow tint on purpose to give it like an autumnal look, apparently. Oh, so, yeah. Anders, did you <laughs> think that this film was dated, or did it did it work well for you? Oh, it totally works well for me. I love it. This film actually, um, it's it's got a really nice, lovely, warm kind of tone. It's very generous towards its main characters. I think it's quite funny. It moves along very quickly. It sort of, it's all takes place over the space of one day and one night. Long-running jokes about, like, interacting with the uni bureaucracy. 
um, I could really relate to. Totally, uh, <laughs> I love that. Fleeing your supervisor, I could relate to. All that kind of stuff. All the uni stuff, um, I think, is really well done. It's, I mean, they're, they're cheap and easy gags, but they're done very well. Mm. It's also got this funny sort of film school stuff going through it. Kim Gingell plays, I think he's great in this movie, he plays like a humanities uh, academic. Um, uh, the kind of academic who, you know, goes through his divorce on the phone <laughs> while his student is sitting in the office with him. It's that great, uh, there's like a lecture scene where he sort of has this bizarre, does he have this bizarre sort of fantasy about like different auteurs and we yes. see mm. them, yeah, all arguing to each other. So there's like this stuff going on through it as well. Um, yeah, it's it's really, I don't know, I find it really enjoyable and a fun reminder of what university should be all about, even mm. if increasingly it's not which might give it a slightly sad undertinge. I don't know. Well, I feel it's really tricky because we're, you know, near un the University of Melbourne and we're talking about films. And I know, I think we all, we've all been students at the, the University of Melbourne, of Melbourne yes. haven't we? Yeah, it's all very young. But it is, I feel, we did touch on this last uh, last time when we were talking about Monkey Grip, about how, detaching ourselves from personal experiences and places and this sort of thing. And I think this film is a fascinating way to, to explore our own relationships with, with a film that's shot in Melbourne. Because this is does you know hit so many marks, um, and I think, but Emma Kate Krogan's approach takes this um, beyond this sort of circle of people who might find it cute to see the old arts building being used, you know, as mm. a set. It seems like a almost like a first the first thing that pops into your head if you're a film student at the VCA and you're making a student film is to make a film with your friends about people who, you know to find actors who are like your friends and and use a lot of film references in it because that's what you happen to have the books lying around you know as you're writing it. So. I think that she has this amazing gift to be able to put um, these, make these characters, and like you were saying, so warmly and so affectionately, and give them really great lines, give them funny situations that are really relatable. Um, and it had a lot of positive reviews overseas, which I think is a really yeah, yeah un I know, almost unusual too. for such a site-specific film as this. Mm. I um, I really like this movie a lot. I think it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I I don't know if it is necessary to remove personal remove yourself. Um, personally from a mm. film that you watch, especially one like this, you know, and especially because we're talking about films shot in Melbourne because we're, you know, based in <laughs> Melbourne. Um, but I did love it. You know, it was so relatable. It was kind of great. Um, there's a, you know, what's become po probably, you know, an in-joke amongst Melburnians, which um, is that Adrian Martin is kind of this, like, um, lecturer on campus, much admired by all film students. Um, and the plot is that... Um, one of the plot is that I think it's, it's Mia. Mia, yeah, tries is wanting to change from cultural studies to film studies so that Adrian Martin will be her lecturer. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so it's all and he he attends a party at their house, so it's all very cool. And also, um, Paul Harris is in it. He's one of the lecturers who walks past kind of busily. I don't think he has any lines, but um, he's a critic in Melbourne as well. So it's it's pretty ingenious, like to bring Adrian Martin in playing himself. Mm as the punchline to that whole joke, that sort of long-running joke. Yes. Like, he comes in and he's like, I won't ruin it, but, like, it's, like, the way the film uses him, I think, is mm. really quite clever and funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And also there's a line, I can't remember, um, it's about one of the one of the male love interests, but they refer to him as the Warren Beatty of the campus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> and the other thing I really admire about this film is that the... The, the the dramatic stakes are like so low 
Like, it's really, it's a chilled, laid-back kind of film. Yeah. It's very, I don't know, it just leaves you feeling good after you watch it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, very enjoyable, mm. you know, very kind of um, fast-paced, you know, it didn't lag at all. Yeah. I didn't think it had dated, perhaps fashion-wise, but, you know. And, <laughs> and also and they it's... serve a, a um, flat white in a latte glass. I had a bit of a problem oh, with that. A, but, and um... a flat white without hold the foam. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know. What foam, <laughs> what right? Yeah, anyway. exactly. Anyway. <laughs> But um, the one, something I thought was really interesting was that looking at other films of, with lesbian and queer characters in it from that era, that becomes like a point. There's usually like something they battle with or they struggle with or they're coming out to somebody or there's some sort of tension there. But with this, it was just like yeah, never was... even questioned. It was just totally normal. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved that too. It was a refreshing too. change, I thought. I loved, uh, yeah, and also that scene in the male bathroom where the guy like yes. asked him for a dollar to get a condom. Oh my God, so and they're fucking in the cubicle. cubicle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's I totally recommend this film. It's mm, great fun. Absolutely, yeah. This brings us to the final part of uh, this episode, which is us looking at our top three favourite adaptations from children's books. Okay, so my number three is a classic. I think we've all seen this. Um, the Princess Bride. Oh, good choice. Rob oh, yeah. Reiner's film from 1987, adapted by author William Goldman from his 1973 novel. Um, now, it's often forgotten that this is a book adaptation, this film, but, you know, it is in the narrative as well because Peter Falk is reading The Princess Bride to his grandson and then it's all imagined, you know, the story is imagined and that's where the film comes from. Um, but, I mean, I myself haven't read the book, but I think that this is just, you know, classic. How can you go by it? The cast is just incredible. Um, it's good for kids. It has a different, you know, level of interest for kids and then for adults, um, it's sort of like the labyrinth in that way, you know, you can enjoy it as a kid and then when you're an adult you kind of get the the rude humour just a little bit more. Um, and I love Carol Kane's cameo. It's so great. So many cameos. So many cameos, yeah. Carol Kane has a, has a particularly good one. Carol Kane and Billy Crystal play switches maybe. Mm. People living in a hovel. <laughs> but yes, it's very mystical. It's got adventure, romance, you know. Cool. It's fighting, very easy everything. to Yeah, very easy to recommend. So that's my number three. Anders, what was your number three? Well, okay, so I really struggled with this for some reason. Um, uh, but look, I chose as my number three uh, a film uh, from last year, When Marnie Was There, directed by Hiromasa Yonebayashi. Um, this is a beautiful, this is a Studio Ghibli uh, film. It was like, got a bit of press because people were saying it was the last one before they went on hiatus. I don't even know. I don't think they even went on hiatus in the end. I don't know. I can't remember. No one's very sure. It's all very <laughs> mysterious. Anyway, um, yeah, very beautifully animated film with a really nice tempo, I think, uh, somewhat unusually for a children's film. Um, it's quite, it's quite serious. It deals with, uh, themes about, you know, identity, uh, same-sex attractions in there, um, stuff like that, all done uh, in that beautiful um, Studio Ghibli style. And in particular, there's this great central set piece that's sort of focused on the town's uh, Tanabara Festival. Um, and it's just like, yeah, very nice, very nicely depicted 
um, uh, portrait, I guess, of small town life in Japan. Yeah. Great. What about you, Andy? Um, well, I didn't struggle with this at all. I <laughs> have copious films that I was considering for this. Um, my number three is The Parent Trap, the 1998 version. Oh my like, God, I yes. could just as easily go the 1961 version. Both of them are completely brilliant. Yep. Um, the adaptations of the uh, German children's book from the 30s called Lotte Elisa. Um, the version that I'm, I'm talking about is the Nancy Myers one that stars Lindsay Lohan. And it is a pretty incredible premise for a film. It feels like it's something that is centuries old. This idea that um, this, these two girls go on a holiday camp where they meet each other for the first time and they realise that they're twins and they decide to swap places to go back to meet their respective parents. So a premise like that could equally wind up being some sort of horrific psychological drama in which you're like, how did I have a parent I didn't know about? Why would a parent keep me secret from the other parent? But instead it's this totally G-rated Disney fantasy um, that exists in this, strange, in this beautiful sort of fairy tale world of um, the sort of London that can only be imagined by an American screenwriter, it seems, where mm. it's all everyone has servants and Big Ben is viewable from every window. But um, and then there's very also very BFG. Very BFG, yeah, good mm. point. Um, and then the other the other girl lives um on a in Napa Valley on this her father's wine. Oh my god, on this incredible Cons- property. I know. I don't know which one to be more jealous of. Uh, yeah, I think this is um just an incredible film. I think it really ticks every single box it sets out to do. It's a under, massively underrated um because it's targeted at young girls and so they're not really just seen as very discerning. It's a family film that doesn't have boys in it at all. I think there's one boy in it who is Lindsay Lohan's brother who has one line. Mm. I think that's pretty much it. So that's mm. a really nice change mm. as well. So I think that's something that everybody could watch and get something out of. Mm. And I love the fencing scene. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, so good. <laughs> so incredible. Um, okay, so my number two is The Sword in the Stone. I just have such a soft spot for this film. I think it's, I loved it as a child and I love it as an adult. I think it's uh, watchable, it's quotable, um, it's, you know, singable, if that's a (laughs) word, you know, I can remember the songs. I think the voice acting is just extraordinary. So this is a Disney film from 1963. It's got a really um, classic kind of cool blue um, colour scheme. Um, and this really, like, nice old-style animation, um, you know, back... Um, I think it was made while while Walt Disney was alive, still, this one. Um, but it's just, yeah, the voice acting is incredible and very important and, you know, very lively. I was doing some reading up on it today, and apparently they, they couldn't find um, someone to voice... Merlin. Um, and they you know, auditioned however many people. And then the person who was going, Carl Swenson, who was meant to voice Archimedes, took over and voiced Merlin. And he does very well, I think. I love his voice. I can hear it in my in my head right now. And then they had someone <laughs> else, Junius Matthews, whose name I hadn't heard before. But he voices Archimedes and he's fantastic. So I think we can all be very um, happy for that, um, <laughs> you know, for that occasion. Yeah, cool. But I love this film and it's, um, you know, very good. And it does have, you know, some of that nice... Disney humour that makes it appreciable for, for adults as well. Mm, cool. Uh, so my number two, I am cheating a bit because I really did struggle with children's book adaptations for, for some reason. Um, uh, and I'm going with a TV series here, The Demon Headmaster, which is a British TV series from the early to mid-1990s. Um, it's based on a series of kids' books and they're quite terrifying, and they're about, as the name would suggest, a the headmaster of a school who uh, hypnotises 
the kids uh, and the staff um, as all part of his global plan for world domination. <laughs> um, now, what makes this particularly uh, frightening, I think, for a young kid watching, is um, the uh, Terence Hardiman, the guy who plays the this uh, the titular demon headmaster. Um, he's got this very severe look, and there are very there's these lingering shots in every episode of this show where it zooms up into his face and his eyes change to this green swirly kind of thing as if he's hypnotising you through the screen, which is quite a an intense thing for a seven-year-old to be watching. Um, so very sort of vivid on that level, but then also very interesting when you take a step back and you look at it... Um, I rewatched it a couple of years ago and I was struck by how, like, it's a very posh private school. They, they all wear these, like, crazy blazers. You know, it's obviously uh, commenting on the nature of conformity and institutions in a really interesting kind of subversive way. It's one of those shows that you watch it and you go, who okayed this? How did this <laughs> become a thing? Well, yeah, so many strange things from that era in British t yeah. TV and films for kids. <laughs> there are, yeah. Um, actually, my number two is also a British film from the 70s for kids, which is The Railway Children. Um, this is an adaptation of a 1906 book by Edith Nesbitt, um, and it's directed by Lionel Jeffries. And there are so many uh, British film films and uh, TV series and books that begin with kids being evacuated out of London during the war and then kind of having to make up the, or deal with this new environment in which they find themselves. And often that's, you know, it might involve a, a, a cupboard with, that leads to Narnia or something like that. But in this case, it's, uh, it's a bit more realistic and doesn't deal with fancy so much. It's, uh, these children are evacuated to, this, um, to a village and their father is falsely imprisoned for spying and they have to kind of find a way of saving him while getting to know the, the interesting characters in this. Um, and at the bottom of their garden, there's this beautiful big old steam train runs every day and they get end up getting to know a man who is always on the last compartment, who's a very rich guy, who's, um, <laughs> who's uh, kind of a bit like a Daddy Warbucks character, I suppose. Um, and so they end up get, meeting him, and then there's also a prisoner of war who's escaped from the... For, uh, who, and found himself in the village. So it has this kind of idealised version of England with steam trains and petticoats and rolling hills and kind strangers, and it's uh, also... It stars Jenny, Jenny Agatar, who was, uh, I think, a year or two later turned up in Australia to star in Walkabout. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, it's just timeless. It's a brilliant book, a brilliant book, and a fantastic film. Cool, great. Yeah. Okay, so drum roll. My number one is Alice by Janusz Frankmeyer, oh. the Czech surrealist film from nineteen eighty eight. Now, I just need to mention, I don't. This is an adaptation of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, obviously, um, but I don't really think it's a children's film. Um, because it's kind of m might be you know sort of more of a children's horror film than a than a nice you know fantasy Disney type of fantasy thing. So um, I adore this film. Um, it's you know it's about a girl and she. Um, when she eats a cookie, she shrinks and becomes small. She becomes a doll, like a really creepy, lifeless doll, um, and then it's filled with. Um, inanimate objects that become animate and all of these animals which are in fact you know just little skeletons like um taxidermied objects um that are moving and that make sounds it's this incredible um element where the horse and carriage is actually chickens but they chicken skeletons but they make horse sounds and they neigh and everything so there's this really great um like dissociative soundtrack that that is very cool um lots of like knives scissors animal carcasses mm -hmm. um 
it's really very dark. There's not a whole lot of dialogue, um, but I, yeah, I really love it. It kind of moves through very quickly. I think it's, um, you know, marvellous in both senses of the word. Um, mm. So that's my mm. recommendation. Nice inspired. Mm. <laughs> cool. Um, I'll have to check it out. My number one uh, is a very different kind of film. Uh, Where the Wild Things Are, Spike Jones's oh, film from okay. a few years ago. Now, this is, like many people, I think, of my generation, uh, this is one of my most beloved children's picture books. And he's really, I think, made this movie for people who... Um, uh, I don't think it's for kids. I think it's for young adults or, and adults who um, connect so strongly with the source material and childhood and all that kind of stuff, I guess. Uh, filmed in and around Melbourne, too, so this could be, mm, a, this yeah. could be a potential Melbourne <laughs> movie. Um, yeah, so, look, I think that what anchors this film is a really fantastic performance from uh, from the late, great James Gandolfini. Um, I think he's really yeah. great as uh, the main wild thing. I've, I love the aesthetic of this film, how it's all very sort of... It's naturalistic. It's got this... Sort of, I don't know, there's like verisimilitude about it, um, which is kind of interesting. I don't know, it's not it's not what you'd expect, I guess. Um, but I really dug that and like these giant puppets, um, you know, it all, yeah, all that kind of stuff. On, on a level of craft, there's a lot to admire here too. And the soundtrack, which is, I think, Karen O and like these school kids who like I remember it being songs. a really fun, great soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's my number one. I And I rewatched it um a couple of nights ago, and it, was, it held up in a way that many films that you sort of really connect to like that don't, mm. but mm. Uh, for me it did, yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, I struggled to pick uh, my number one, but I, I almost went with Mary Poppins, but I figured oh, that's, yeah. people know that and love that enough already and probably doesn't need to get mentioned, but I think The Grave of the Fireflies, the 1988 Studio Ghibli movie, apologies for going Ghibli again, um, is, uh, is definitely worthy of um, being considered. Um, Asayo Takata directed that, and uh, it's basically this story of this uh, boy and his younger sister who are caught in the bombing of during Second the Second World War of this Japanese uh, village called Kobe. Oh, sorry, it's a city. And so it's essentially a story of survival, but it's rendered so beautifully and so tragically and so movingly that it's just impossible, I think, to not get kind of caught up in it because these. You're so used to seeing Studio Ghibli characters so really sensitively, beautifully rendered, and the world so g gorgeously detailed. And in this case, the the children are very sweet, but they're also constantly being pushed to by the need to survive and the need to steal food or to um, try and uh, eke out a sort of living on the edge of this village as the war is kind of going on. Um, it's all, it's done in this in, in the way the Studio Ghibli often do, where they look at the spirit spiritual aspect of the story, and so. There is sort of a, a sense of redemption and hope, even though it's relentlessly depressing and bleak. Um, and it's all the more so, I think, for being so beautifully and carefully uh, articulated. Mm. So um, that was my number one. Did you have any nearly but not quites? Uh, I had a few nearly but not quites. I was throwing up between um, The Sword in the Stone and 101 Dalmatians, the oh, 1961 yeah. Disney film, which has a, a very beautiful, similar aesthetic and animation style. And um, I rewatched it uh, in recent years, and I think it holds up for... Like, I just think it's a really excellently composed and constructed film. Um, so that one and... The Witches, mm. Roald Dahl's The mm. Witches, uh, made by Nicholas Rogue. I rewatched the other day. It's also on YouTube. Um, and I, 
am terrified. I loved this film as a kid, um, but I've been too terrified to watch it as an adult. So I haven't seen it probably in about 15 or tw 20 years, wow. probably. Wow. Um, it's not that scary. It's very fun and it's <laughs> very fast paced. I think um, it also the ending is changed from the novel, but I think that the ending is, is much better. And I think the pacing is much better than the recent Spielberg BFG. Mm. Um, <laughs> but that one and Angelica Houston, of course. Oh. Yeah, um, and Bubble from Abfab <laughs> is well, the nice go. witch in the end. But anyway, so that was a surprise to realise that. Anyway, so okay. the witches. Cool. And uh, Andy, did you have any Yeah, else? Um, well, I, I, I thought Fantastic Mr Fox was worth a mention because oh, yes. it's a very interesting case of an adaptation going way beyond the book that is seeking to adapt. Yep. Uh, I thought it's Kiki's Delivery Service. Again, another beautifully rendered world of interesting uh, characters in it. And... Uh, and where the wild things are was also also made my list because oh, good. even though um, I feel like it's, it's touched on a hipster spectrum there, there was still a very uh, very interesting case of an adaptation, particularly for a kids book to spend seventy percent of its advertising budget towards marketing um, towards adults. Yes, it was an mm. unusual move. I thought too. Although it did start that annoying trend of everybody wearing animal suits. <laughs> yeah, both. I think, it's, I think it's responsible for that. <laughs> the fairy trend. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Or <laughs> not quite putting, putting on the streets, <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's an interesting uh, uh, question now. Is like it's you see this more and more these sort of kids, kids books uh, adaptations, kids film. Well, nominally kids films that are being marketed towards young adults and adults. So see, like Toy Story Three, I think is a classic example. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Like that is made for people who were kids when they watched Toy Story One, and are now no yeah, longer it's children. Yeah, big risk, isn't it? Yeah, it's and now we're Toy Story Four. Exactly. Are we? Yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. interesting. And Cars Three. We're also getting Big a remake of a remake of The Sword in the Stone, a remake of Mary Poppins. Pete's so Dragon remake is coming out lots soon. Lots to look forward to slash <laughs> wait in fear of. Yes. <laughs> we'll be sure to let you know about all about and more on forthcoming episodes of Cultural Capital. Um, please do find us on Facebook and like us there. I think we're up to six, maybe even seven oh, likes. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and Twitter, we're the Cult Cap Pod. Uh, and you can also send us an email at culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, let us know if you have any problems with our top threes or our mm. suggestions. Thank you for listening. Mm.